Imagine yourself getting ready for a midterm exam. Survey a cow, let's say, okay? The prof has given you a study guide for the test, and he's told you what chapters that you need to study for the exam. And so the night before the test, you and your posse go up to Club Mullins to get a little studying done, like that's actually going to happen. And while you're two hours into studying, you look over at your friend, and you realize, you know, with, with, when you look over to her, earbuds in, she's got her TI-89 calculator. She's rocking and rolling. I don't, is that even up to date these days? There, is, there still is TI-89? Oh, okay. Like we were using that like a decade ago, so I'm not Stone Age yet. There it is, Silver Plus Edition. All right, so hey, you've got your TI-89 in hand. She's got her earbuds in, and you look over, and she's got the wrong study guide. And she is studying the wrong chapters for the midterm exam. So the question is, what's the most loving thing to do in that situation? Now, if you're like me back in high school, I probably would have said nothing and just let them just go on studying so that I could get a kick out of the fact that when they get to that test and so I could see their face <laughs> and then watch them feel it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I would have really done that. Uh, that was my pre-Christian day, right? So now we can, uh, so now I would not have done that. That would be ungodly. Uh, but what's the most loving thing to do? The most loving thing to do is to tap her on the shoulder and just say, hey, night before the test, it's a big test. You might want to study the right chapters. You know what? I'm going to go print off for you the correct study guide. That's the most loving thing to do, right? It's to let them know they're studying the wrong chapters. And if not, They'll fail their midterm and make shipwreck of their grade for the rest of the semester. They will. It's a midterm. And scattered throughout the Bible, we get similar loving warnings and exhortations to examine our faith so that we don't fail the test of true belief and end up being eternally condemned. This is important. This is an important question that you've got to ask yourself. What is a Christian and am I really a Christian? Everybody has got to ask themselves that because I think scattered Throughout the landscape of not only America, but even throughout the world, there are a lot of people that would say that they're believers, but in actuality, they're probably not when we get down to it. They don't have a right understanding of the gospel. And that's the point of why we're doing this series. So no, I don't claim to stand in the place of God and to tell you whether you are in or whether you are out. That is not what I'm doing. Okay? I don't claim to be an expert. But I do know what the experts say in God's word. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Okay. So understand, I've got to examine my own life just as much as anyone else. Just as much as anybody else. We all have to examine our lives. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. To examine yourselves. To see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Paul commands us to examine ourselves and test ourselves. So this series is really intended for those who profess to be Christians or those who want to be Christians. That's who it's for. So understand, I know that for many of you who are believers, assurance of salvation is a struggle. And this class may at times be kind of a struggle for you. And I know that. My goal is not to unsettle you. A lot of these truths will be unsettling, but my goal isn't to unsettle you with those things. 
but to help you see how you can have confidence in your salvation. You're truly a believer and you struggle with that assurance piece. My goal is to help you with confidence in your salvation. For others, maybe by the time that we're done in four weeks from now, you come to a greater realization that you're not a believer. My goal is that this class, God would use this class as a means to your salvation. That's my goal. For those of you that maybe come to realize, hey, I don't think I'm probably a believer. It's right to be honest with ourselves. And it's right to seek out others in order to get honest opinions as to where they believe us to be at according to God's word. So that brings us to the first question. What is a Christian? If someone asked you that question, what would you say? What is a Christian? Does being a Christian mean wearing WWJD bracelets? Does it mean voting Republican in the, bol- in the polls? Is that what a Christian means? So often in the last election cycle, everybody thinks that being a Christian means you're a Republican. Is a Christian one who listens to Caleb or listens to Sadie Robertson or listens to John Piper sermons or goes to Lecrae concerts? Is that what a Christian is? Am I a Christian just because I claim to be a Christian? Is that what a Christian is? So what really is a Christian? The word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. It simply means one who follows Christ. It is a Christ follower. That's what it means. One who follows Christ or who is a Christ follower. And since Christians followed Christ, that means they followed his message. The man and his message are bound together. To reject one is to reject the other. It's all or nothing. A Christian then is someone who's heard the gut. Sorry, who's heard the message of good news about Jesus, and they've responded in repentance and faith. That's what a Christian is, someone who's heard the good news, and then they've responded to it. And this message of good news is the gospel, that God has created everything out of nothing. He is the ruler of the universe. And yet, in his mercy and his justness and his kindness and his love, he has created us so that we may be in a loving, life-giving relationship with him. But the bad news is, is that we reject God. We want to be rulers of our own lives. And so, because God is a just God, the punishment for that is eternal death. But God, being a merciful God, sent his son Jesus into this world to live the life that you and I cannot live, that perfect life, and to die the death that you and I should have died, which was that crucifixion, because of our sin against God, in order to give us the life that we cannot earn eternal life with God forever. But the way that we receive that life, that gift of salvation, is by turning away from our sin and turning to serve God, trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the response. Jesus commands everyone to repent and believe. So there's only really two people in the world. You're either a believer or you're not. That's what Jesus is saying. You're either repenting and trusting in him, or you're not. We cannot be like, like indifferent to Christ in this kind of mushy middle area. There is no such thing. When it comes to being in or out, it is black and white. That's very plain according to the scriptures. So the message of good news is the gospel, and that gospel is for all humanity. It's for everyone. All right, so with that, let's unpack Christian, what the, what the definition of a Christian is a little bit more. I like how Mike McKinley in his book uh, defines it. He says, a Christian is someone who has received the new birth as a free gift from God. A Christian 
is someone who has received the new birth as a free gift from God. I'll say it again for those of you writing it down. A Christian is someone who has received the new birth as a free gift from God. Okay, so understand what's going on here. I'll just write this down. Big word. Okay, I'm going to use this big word called regeneration. Underneath it, what, is, what's, what are th- other ways of, of saying regeneration? It means new birth or to be born again. That's another way of saying that. Okay? So regeneration or new birth, regenerate, to be born anew, born again. From where? From above. Literally born again literally means born from above. Okay? So regeneration is born again, new birth. You can use those three terms interchangeably. They're going to get the same thing. Three ways saying the same thing. So that brings us to point number one. What's the new birth? What is it? Let's look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I want somebody to read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Please raise your hand if you're going to read it. And raise it rather quickly. Great Garrett. So John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. For those of you new to the Bible, John is one of the Gospels. It's known as the fourth Gospel. So if you go to the New Testament, John is the fourth Gospel. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Okay, background right here. So right here we've got a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was part of the religious elite of his day. And surely if anyone knew how to get into the kingdom of God, it was Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, which was one of the most religiously rigorous groups during Jesus' day. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, probably in order to avoid detection from others. After all, being a religious elite, going to visit the man who had been overturning tables in God's temple in the previous chapter, well, that's probably going to jeopardize your reputation. So you go to Jesus at night. And not surprisingly, our boy Nico was probably a little nervous. And so the first thing that Nicodemus says is, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So clearly, Nico respects Jesus by calling him Rabbi. And he identifies that his words and works are actually from God. We know you're a teacher from God. No one can do these works and these signs that you do unless God is with him. But Nicodemus doesn't quite have a category for Jesus just yet. He doesn't have that category. And so he's not going, he knows that Jesus has had no rabbinic training. That's just rabbis and their training, rabbinic training. He knows that Jesus hasn't had that. And yet he's doing these things and he's, he's teaching these things that only God can do. 
And so you'd think that Jesus is going to put together one of the most kind of eloquent responses to Nicodemus. But in an out-of-the-left-field kind of way, he says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that is from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're kind of like, what does that have to do with anything? Right? Is that what? But the thing is, is what's glorious is actually in the passage right before it, in chapter 2, 23 through 25, Jesus knows what man needs. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what man needs. He knows exactly what he needs. So that Nicodemus has one plan, Jesus has another, and he's coming at it. And you think that Jesus is trying to make a point with this. He repeats it three times. There in verse uh, 3, and then in verse 5, and verse 7. And Nicodemus, more confused than ever, says in short, How can I fit into my mother's womb when I'm old? That's impossible. People are only born once, Jesus. But Nicodemus is missing Jesus.
They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. There's not even one that does good. In the New Testament, Paul picks this up, and he talks about the spiritual deadness in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, by saying that we were dead in our sins, that we followed Satan's schemes, and we were by our very nature children of wrath. That is unsettling, but that is Bible. I'm not coming with my own opinions right now. Just give me two bucks. It's unsettling. This picture of our spiritual condition outside of Christ is not pretty. And so, understand, we're not drowning. We are drowned. We aren't spiritually weak, sick, or wounded. We are spiritually dead when we come into this world. Or as the subtitle of the Pirates of the Caribbean puts it, dead men tell no tales. Dead men tell no tales. You can't speak. You can't do anything if you're dead. So it's not just that we are unwilling to please God. It's that we are unable to please God. Because we're not complete. For Nicodemus, entering the kingdom of God was about what he could do. Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, though you may be breathing physically, you're spiritually dead. You can't do anything to improve your situation. The solution isn't turning over a new leaf. It's not turning over a new leaf or just being a nice girl or a nice guy. That's not the solution. It's not about moral self-reform or self-improvement or whether you can claim to be a follower, follower of Christ. It's not that. As if God just kind of judges whether or not we enter the kingdom on whether or not we put Christian on our Facebook page. That's not it. He doesn't judge by that. Jesus isn't speaking about a stop-and-start religion. Much like, like I used to practice. I need to stop cussing, stop hanging out with these kinds of girls, I need to stop cheating on exams, I need to stop yada, yada, yada. And instead, what do I need to do? I need to start reading my Bible, I need to start praying, I need to sign up for a mission trip. Right? And then maybe if I'm really feeling good and holy, I'll sign up to work in the ministry. <laughs> All that, because I thought God would be pleased with me. I just need to just I need behavior modification. That's what I need. For so many, religion is an external formal thing rather than an internal spiritual transformation thing that moves us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Clearly, Nicodemus should have known this from the Old Testament, and he also should have known that God promised to provide that solution so that we're not kept in the dark. God doesn't just look at us and say, wow, speaks to be you all. Instead, God has responded. Promise to save us, as he said in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. You're going to memorize a passage. This is a great one. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God was going to make his people alive by giving them a new heart and place his spirit within his people so that they desire the kinds of things that God desires, so that they love and are passionate about the things that God loves and God is passionate about. So why is this necessary? Because we're spiritually dead. God's wrath is against us because we sin against him. Because we want to try to be the ruler of our own lives, right? We 
are the captive of our souls. So often is that quote. And we get so tight when it's a really intense meeting. We're like, oh, yeah, good. It can be so good. But it's not. However, God has promised to do something about it. So how do we get this new birth? How can we get it? Well, as we've seen, we can't give or gain for ourselves this new birth. You can't give it to yourself. You can't get it for yourself. But the good news is that Jesus came to make what is impossible with man possible with God. That's the good news. In our story with Nicodemus, we see that Nicodemus can't get this new birth by himself. He can't do it. Instead, it's a work of God's spirit acting according to his good pleasure. Did you notice right there? Verse 8. Jesus says, that is John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, the word spirit and the word wind right there, it's, the same, it's a play on words. It's the same word. Right? Hebrew, ruach, in Greek, it's pneuma. Same word. So it's a play on words. He's giving you, like, an illustration, a comparison. It doesn't mean that it's exactly like wind, like you need to go out and be like, the Spirit's moving. Like, the wind, the Spirit is alive. You know, like, right? Because the wind is blowing. That's not what he's saying. He's giving you a comparison, an illustration. It is not that very thing. It is to show you how the Spirit saves as he wishes. Okay? Alright. So what would it take to get this new birth? It's not our work, but it's Christ. Jesus secures new life for his people through his life, death, and resurrection. And then, God applies that new birth, that redeeming work, to our lives by giving us new life by his Spirit and placing his Spirit within us. Look at how Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Just a little FYI, the bathrooms are in the back. Okay? Just in case you're wondering. Notice, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So notice how we're born again. Notice how we get this new birth. Number one, it's according to God's great mercy. Mercy is God not giving to us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. God not giving to us what we deserve. So this is according to God's great mercy. It's not, a, it's not based on us. Second thing to notice, it's God who's caused us to be born again. It's a living hope. We haven't caused ourselves to be born again. Regeneration is solely an invisible act of God. It's not our own action. There's a caveat to this. Just because you can't give yourself new life doesn't mean that God turns people away who truly desire to. God doesn't deny anyone who desires to be saved because God has given you those very desires to begin with. He's not going to deny you your wanting salvation because he's given you that desire to begin with. Number three, third thing to notice from this in 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-4. It's through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Without the resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, faith is in vain, we're still in our sins, we are without hope, and we are all people most but praise God that Christ got up from the grave and that none of that is true for us. He got up from the 
returning through his resurrection. Now the last thing, number four, notice the purpose of God causing us to be born again. The point of that passage right there, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for doing this. It's not to get upset with God and think, oh, I don't contribute anything to my salvation. That's not, that ought not be a response of one who one can. Even though sometimes you may struggle with that. I've struggled with that. But that ought not to be our response. Instead, we're giving praise to God that he's caused us to be born again. Now, if you're not in that place where your heart is inclined to give praise to God for that, and you kind of are upset with God, one of the things that can be helpful to you is just grab someone, take 16 days, and read Romans. All 16 chapters. Read it together. Discuss it together. And I assure you, coming out of that, you will be blessed by studying Romans. Okay? Get in the Word. Take the Word, massage it upon that heart of yours, so that you will, and then pray all the time, all the time, pray that God would incline your heart to obedience, to give praise to Him for saving you. Alright, so how do we get this new birth? It's not by saying a prayer. It's not by claiming to be a Christian. It's not by ringing a bell at a church camp. We experience new birth solely by a merciful act of God through His Spirit. We simply receive that. That's what we do. We receive it. Number four, last point. What's the result of it? What is the result of the new birth? In Acts 16, verse 14. We meet a woman by the name of Lydia. She's from Thyatira, who's approached by Paul and others outside the city of Philippi. Lydia begins to have a conversation with Paul and his compadres. And then it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so God moved upon Lydia's heart, and then she listened to the preaching of the gospel out of Paul's mouth, and she responded in faith. This is what happens in the new world. It's an immediate, invisible act of God, and it results in repentance and faith. It results in repentance and faith. It results in conversion. What it is. The Bible calls this conversion. God causes us to be born again, and then the result is repentance and faith. And repentance and faith are what mark out those who are Christians. So, I'm going to just draw this. You've got God, right? He causes, you can even see this, causes regeneration. result of that is what we call conversion. I know what ours are funny. When we talk about conversion, we're talking about faith and repentance. Not asking Jesus in your heart. I know that's going to hit some of you hard. I did it whenever I was younger as well. I'm not mocking. I'm just highlighting. All right. So God causes regeneration. The result of that is conversion. Conversion is, how do we talk about conversion biblically? Faith and repentance. Repent and believe, Jesus says, Mark 1, 15. Faith and repentance. Each side of a coin, right? Both sides of a coin. Faith, flipping over faith, other side of repentance. That's what that is. It's kind of, if you're looking at an order, regeneration comes before conversion. We're looking at kind of a logical order of all these things. So the Bible calls this conversion. Alright, so what is, what are faith and repentance? What are faith and repentance right here? Faith. Alright? 
got this chair, okay? You've got that chair, and that chair, I know, is a chair, right? I've been taught that people have given me information that this is a solid piece of wood, this is a chair, okay? I look at it, I know, because I've been given facts, that this is a chair. Now, I believe those facts, and I know that that chair is supposed to hold me up. I know that. I believe that. But when do I come to faith? When do I start trusting? I start trusting whenever I rely upon the chair to actually hold me up. When I rest in the chair. That's what faith is. So understand, Christ, Christ died for my sins. Right? I believe Christ died for my sins. Right? Those are facts. I believe those facts. Therefore, I will rely upon Christ and trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins. I will rest in his finished work on my behalf to grant me eternal life rather than trying to trust in the works of my own hands to give me eternal life. That's what faith is. Faith is resting. It's relying. It's trusting. Faith isn't believing. I don't know what just happened. There it is. And we're back. Strange. Clearly this is not what they teach Do this, don't do that, then you're good with God. 
that's not repentance. It's a matter of allegiance. It's a matter of allegiance. Whose side are you on? There's only two sides. You're either on sin's side, going against God, or you're on God's side, going against your sin. So are you on God's side, fighting against your sin? That's one of the easiest ways to tell if someone's a believer. Are they fighting against their sin, or are they not? It's a helpful way to look at it. Are you at peace or at war against your sin? The Christian is at war with their sin. The unbeliever isn't trying to fight. They've thrown up the white flag, and they've given it to God. Caveat right here. Now this is heavy. We need to guard against the misunderstandings of it. Although God's invisible act of making us new internally is immediate, those external evidences, right, the fruit of that, change within us. That may happen more slowly. Though it is immediate, it may happen. The fruit may happen a little more slowly. It's not always easy to tell when someone's been born again. And regeneration doesn't immediately take away all indwelling sin. Paul talks about that in Romans 7, his own struggle with sin. We know we're not perfect. No Christian is perfect. However, this new life will make a difference in our lives, though it may be slow at times. So, this difference is going to bear visible fruit. Where do we see this? Galatians chapter 5, verses 24. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, get this imagery, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's a Christian. They are at war, crucifying their passions and desires. Crucifying that flesh. Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 24. That's the reference. You didn't get all that. So how can we tell we've been born again? This is it. We look for the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, 22, 22. As one author put it, the Spirit of God does not make us alive and then just leave us alone. He gives us new life. He gives us new faith, new loves, and desires. And so we look for new attitudes. We look for new passions. We look for new desires within people to see if they have faith. The second thing that we can do is that we can get other mature believers in our local church. The context needs to be the local church where people know you best. They can assess your life to see if there's fruit in your life and then to give assurance that, yeah, I think that you're showing signs of a believer. Right? There's fruit in these tangible ways in your life. So we need to get another believer to help us if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever and you're like, man, I don't know if that's me or not. Okay. Just be honest with yourself. But hey, there are follow-up things to this. The evangelistic Bible study training stuff. Right? We have evangelistic uh, Bible studies going on throughout campus throughout the week. If you're interested in one of those, we'd love to get you plugged into one of those. Start working through the gospel, or actually start working through uh, the evangelistic study that we're doing through Genesis. And then seeing who God really is, this God who creates, right, and then people seem to obey. So if you're interested in those, maybe that's the next step for you, an evangelistic Bible study on campus. For believers, get a mature believer, someone who's older, more mature than you in the faith, have them walk alongside you and help to identify tangible evidences of fruit in your life so that they can give you assurance. They need to assess the fruit issue. So do you have the fruit of the new birth in your life? Do you have it? You need to ask yourself that. Do you have it? 
that's the question that we're going to be looking at the next two weeks.